Welcome to Navigating Consciousness. I'm Rupert Sheldrake, and this is a podcast of my talks and conversations. If you enjoy listening, please subscribe and leave a review in your favorite podcatcher. It really helps. So, why is there so much beauty in the world? Um, the first thing you might think is it's all in the eye of the beholder. It's all about us. We're predisposed to see beauty, um, so we think there's a lot in the world, but actually it's just something to do with our own minds. That's a kind of hypothesis that might come forward. I've been thinking about this, you see, and I haven't been reading thousands of books. I've just been thinking about it, and um, it's the kind of thing that I'd not thought about much before, and I'm guessing that some of you have not spent a great deal of time thinking about it either, because we tend to take it for granted. So is it just because of us? Do we project it onto the, uh, onto the world? Well, first, um, humans are undoubtedly interested in beauty. Um, art is one of our creations, and the first works of art appeared in caves 35,000 years ago, what are still, for us, beautiful paintings. Uh, we have beautiful architecture, beautiful textiles, beautiful jewellery, beautiful pictures, beautiful sculpture, um, and we have beautiful ceramics and objects of craft, beautiful woodwork. Um, so we surround ourselves with a great deal of beauty. Uh, so we're obviously interested in it. Um, but there are cultural variations, so it's not as if there's an absolute beauty, because in some cultures, music, for example, which is very beautiful, to other people is fairly incomprehensible. Um, I lived in South India for quite a while, and uh, South Indian Carnatic music is, for South Indians, incredibly beautiful. For me, it was beautiful, but I just missed most of it. I'd be sitting at these concerts, and suddenly there'd be a gasp, and everyone would go, va, va, you know, so, so just absolutely love the music. And I didn't notice what had happened. So clearly there was a kind of aesthetics there that was passing me by. And so there are cultural variations. And again, that might make you think, well, it's all in our minds. But we're also interested in the beauty of nature. Um, many of us like coming to Cortes Island because it's so beautiful. There's the beauty of the views, the scenery, um, of the trees, of plants. Um, we're impressed by the beauty of butterfly wings, peacock tails, and there's a huge amount of beauty in the world which we only discovered uh, quite recently through the invention of the microscope. People were able to look at small forms of life, like radiolarians, which live in the sea. They're single-celled organisms with unbelievably beautiful spikes coming out and uh, complex forms. Snowflakes are extraordinarily beautiful, but until people had microscopes, you couldn't see any of these details. Until telescopes were invented, we couldn't see any galaxies or any stars, uh, any, uh, any details of any planets. But until radio telescopes were invented and more powerful telescopes in the 20th century, we couldn't see any galaxies outside our own. Um, now we can, and many of these galaxies are extraordinarily <coughs> beautiful. They're enormous objects in the sky. They're a uh, hundred billion light years, a hundred million light years across. Uh, no, a hundred thousand light years across, many of them. There's a huge distance in, in space 
And yet when we see these spiral galaxies with those, these flow patterns that they seem to show, uh, we recognize those as beauty, beautiful too. So why is there all that beauty in nature? And why do we recognize it? It's nothing to do with us, uh, these galaxies or the beauty of radiolarians. They were there long before humans uh, existed and long before we were aware of their existence. Um, so is it just our minds recognizing this? Is it something about us? Well, I think the next step in the argument that occurred to me when I was thinking about this is, no, it can't just be about us, because think of flowers. Flowers, we find them beautiful, but flowers have been around for a 100 million years. Uh, human beings, modern humans, have been around for a 100,000 years, and, and urban civilizations for, what, 12,000 years. Uh, flowers long precede all of us. And all the great, all the different kinds of flowering plant, all the different families of flowers um, are uh, ancient, at least 60 million years old. Uh, the first flowering plants were about 100 million years uh, ago uh, in the age of the dinosaurs. So why are flowers beautiful? Charles Darwin asked this question, and in one of the rare poetic passages in The Origin of Species, uh, he pointed out there could have been no flower until there was an eye to see it. Flowers exist because animals have eyes. There are communication between plants and animals, primarily a communication between plants and, and insects, bees uh, and other insects that pollinate them, and butterflies. Um, most animals aren't that interested in flowers, um, but insects certainly are. And this evolution of flowers um, has happened in response to insects looking at them. Insects look at them more thoroughly than we do. Um, bees crawl inside them. And one of the things that uh, we've been doing in our workshop is looking into the insides of flowers, getting a bee's eye view uh, using hand lenses, um, loops, these small times 10 lenses. And with one of these you can um, actually go right inside the flower and find yourself in a kind of wraparound colourscape, uh, which is what bees are experiencing. But this seems to go beyond the call of duty, the beauty of these flowers. I mean, it seems, how much beauty do you need for a bee to be attracted to a flower? Flowers are attractive to bees, but it seems that they're gratuitously beautiful. I mean, you, you can make artificial flowers that attract bees just out of simple cut-out cardboard shapes. Um, and yet these flowers are vastly more beautiful uh, than they need to be. And how is it that bees can appreciate this beauty with such small brains? A bee's brain contains about a million nerve cells. Our brains contain a hundred billion. Um, so our brains are a hundred million, uh, million times uh, more bigger than bees' brains. <coughs> We've got a hundred million times more nerve cells than bees' brains, and yet one hundred millionth of our brain is enough to drive the evolution of flowers. So what is it about flowers that bees can see and appreciate the beauty of? Well, I think part of it is because flowers have actually quite simple symmetrical forms. If we take flowers in the sunflower or daisy family, we see these radially symmetrical flowers. Um, 
which are instantly attractive to us, but they're clearly instantly attractive to insects as well. It's a simple radially symmetrical gestalt or pattern. We find in flowers a whole range of other flowers, but they come in simple forms. The flowers usually come either in the sunflower type with the sun-like design, or they come with petal designs in threes, fours, or fives. In lilies and all related plants, they come in threes. So we have three internal petals and then three external petals. So um, these, again, it's a very simple form, three. I mean, we you don't need a very complicated brain to count to three. And um, most flowers are based on these very simple three, four, and five, or multiples of that. Um, this is Alstroemeria, which has three outer petals and three inner petals, but it's asymmetric, so it's sort of squished. Um, but it's still three plus three. Then some petals, some flowers have petals in fours. This is a fuchsia that has four petals around the central part. And all the cabbage family, the Brassicaceae, including wallflowers, have four petals. <clears throat> and then um, many flowers have five petals, including the iconic hollyhock. Um, and um, nasturtiums, where the there's three lower petals are different from the two upper petals. But again, it's a five-fold pattern and it's got a simple bilateral symmetry, rather than being radially symmetrical. Here's another five-fold pattern, the flower of a phlox. Um, so these, what I'm suggesting is that these simple patterns, uh, where you have multiplicity within the whole, threes, fours, fives, or uh, radially symmetrical patterns, um, are forms of beauty. Uh, because they show uh, an order, a pattern, a symmetry um, of a fairly easily graspable, graspable kind, uh, easily enough for insects to grasp and find attractive, um, but also uh, attractive to us with these vastly more complex brains. Now, humans have taken the beauty of flowers further through plant breeding, and Plant breeders start with wildflowers and then select varieties like double-petaled uh, varieties um, to end up with the kind of thing we find in Hollyhock Garden. Uh, there are a number of different species here. Uh, no one's quite sure. Uh, we've done in our group. We've done counts. My own count came to about sixty different species of flower in the garden in flower at the moment. Uh, some people got ninety. Some someone got seventy. Anyway. There's a great many different flowers in Hollyhock Garden, and those that have been bred as varieties um, have had a sort of extra beauty added through selection and plant breeding. But some of the um, plants in the garden are species, unbred, they're basically domesticated wild species, um, and still have an extraordinary beauty. So that's one thing. Why should insects appreciate beauty in the first place? That's the next question. Why is it that insects would appreciate the beauty of flowers and help trigger off this fantastic cascade of floral evolution? Well, it's, it turns out that animals of many, many species have a very strong aesthetic sense. Um, 
Butterflies, for example, often have extraordinarily beautiful wings. There are many beetles that have remarkable iridescent colours. Many fish, particularly tropical fish, uh, have very beautiful forms. Many birds have beautiful plumage, the most obvious example being the peacock's tail. Um, and uh, many mammals are very beautiful. And, of course, many people are very beautiful too. So why is it that there's so much beauty among animals as well as plants? And again, Darwin uh, was one of the first people to turn his attention to this question. And Darwin worked out that in, it, 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 he explained it in terms of what he called the theory of sexual selection. Uh, it's all about sex. Well, plants are too. The flowers are about male and female and pollination. It's basically, it turns out to be all about sex, both in flowers and animals. Um, but the, within the animals, what Darwin showed is that in many uh, animal, uh, animal species, uh, particularly in birds, the competition is for females to choose the most beautiful male. The females are the ones who do the choosing, and the males who are the ones who have the beautiful display. If you think about it, peacocks have extraordinarily beautiful tails and feathers, whereas peahens are rather dowdy-looking by comparison. Um, if, you, if you look at pheasants, the male pheasants have much more splendid plumage than the female pheasants. And this is true of many, many bird species. And some birds that aren't necessarily that beautiful themselves create displays of beauty, like bower birds, which collect objects and arrange them in, in a kind of installation um, for, uh, to attract females. So um, females have this great sense of male beauty. Female peacocks choose according to which male peacock has the most beautiful plumage. Um, and this is the basis of their sex or choice. Now, in reptiles and mammals, as Darwin pointed out, it doesn't work in terms of beauty, first and foremost. Um, among ma mammals and among many reptiles, as Darwin put it, the law of battle prevails. Um, among uh, sexual competition in mammals is primarily to do with competition between males, uh, usually through fighting and trials of strength. And as he points out, even vegetarian and quite pacific animals like hares can fight to the death in the mating season. Moles, too, will do this. And Darwin's method was to pile up evidence upon evidence upon evidence until his case is totally overwhelming. And I read Darwin's uh, book on sexual selection, um, and he just does it chapter after chapter, you know, in most mammal species, the males are bigger than the females. Why? Not because they need to be bigger to, uh, to, because of predators, because both male and females are subject to predation, because they need to be bigger to fight other males. In many mammalian species, males have horns and females don't. Why? Because they need them for fighting and display. In many species, they have tusks. Uh, the males have tusks. And if the females have them, they're much smaller. Why? Because they need them for fighting. And um, Darwin then points out that the same applies to chimpanzees, gorillas, and other apes. And he then reported from early anthropologists traveling through North America who found that in tribe after tribe that they visited, uh, the main form of sport for young men was wrestling. And uh, the winner of the wrestling match got the girl. So um, this, this is sort of similar patterns 
uh, occur in humans. And uh, male competition is, of course, something that's not unfamiliar to most of us um, in all sorts of arenas. That means that in, and, and in reptiles too, there's, uh, it tends to be male fights between males. Then the winning males get to choose the female. So here, female beauty becomes important rather than male beauty because the, the ones who get the choice, the best choice are the ones who win the fights or come out top of whatever competitive scheme it is, sports, football, cricket, game, uh, games in general, business, uh, corporations, rising. I mean, the, 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 the more powerful uh, in, in most situations tend to have a bigger pick. And so then male uh, competition, according to Darwin, uh, relies on the, 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 um, the selection depends on these criteria of beauty in females. And this is true in, in all mammals, but the evolutionary psychologists have had a great time with this. As you can imagine, they've taken this Darwinian agenda much further forward in recent years using these kind of rather grimly utilitarian arguments. But they must have some grain of truth. Uh, the argument is that since um, humans walk upright, then uh, secondary, sec secondary sexual characteristics that men will find attractive are ones that are to do with reproduction. So breasts become very important uh, as aspects of female beauty. It's not necessary for producing milk. Most breasts are made of fat tissue, and chimpanzees and other apes don't have protruding breasts. Uh, that's because they don't walk upright, according to this theory. Wide hips are important because of childbearing, and a good complexion uh, because it's a sign of health and therefore fertility. So these are all uh, evolutionary psychological arguments based on uh, standard kind of biological principles. And they would predict that among humans, uh, women would spend a lot more on clothes than men, be more interested in cosmetics. Some would undergo breast enlargements. Uh, um, they'd like to display their figures, etc. All of this seems very utilitarian, I know, uh, but it makes biological sense. So these, um, these uh, biological arguments about sexual selection help us to see why there might have been driving evolutionary principles that lead to beauty. But as Darwin himself said, they don't explain the sense of beauty itself. Why is it that female peacocks find this amazing display of feathers beautiful? Why is it that uh, female uh, fish find uh, uh, the, uh, the display of the beauty of the tropical fish colors so attractive? Why is it the butterflies find other butterflies' wings so beautiful? And uh, insects, their ability to respond to the beauty of flowers may well be because they'd already been responding for millions and millions of years to the beauty of other uh, the opposite sex in their own species. So why is it that this sense of beauty is dispersed so, through many, so many animals? It's not just us. Almost every animal species has a sense of beauty which comes out in sexual selection, in choice of mates. And uh, in the case of insects, spills over into an appreciation of flowers. Uh, and in the case of flowers, it's not just the shape, it's also the color, and in some cases, a beautiful smell as well. Um, so throughout all animal nature, we find this beauty. And even in plants, which uh, are the vegetative parts of plants, which are not 
involved in reproduction or attracting insects, like fern leaves, for example, we see extraordinary beauty in plant structures and leaves. So why is this so? Um, I think that it suggests that the way that minds work, even simple minds, uh, has uh, work in a similar way to the way that beautiful forms appear in nature. There's a kind of resonance between minds and the natural world. I think that the ability of an insect to represent, to recognize the um, three plus threefold mandala-like pattern of a lily um, is because something in its nervous system resonates with that. It may even be literally that it has sort of threefold wave patterns uh, in the nervous system. Nervous systems have wave patterns within them, and wave patterns can set up different forms. If we look at the way that the whole of nature is organized, uh, it turns out that it has particular kinds of structure. Um, the organization of everything in nature, um, everything that's self-organizing, turns out to uh, be made up of holes within part, parts within holes, and the holes, the whole system uh, itself is a part of some, something larger. So it's what's called a nested hierarchy or, or a holarchy. So within atoms there are subatomic particles, like electrons and neutrons, and within the nucleus there are many different subatomic particles. The neutron, the nucleus of an atom is a hole. It's W-H-O-L-E, a hole, um, made up of parts, neutrons and protons. Round it are the electrons whizzing in a series of orbitals, many of which are very beautiful. They, they're, they're some are figures of eight-type orbitals, some are donut-shaped. Um, they have mathematical forms, the orbitals even within uh, the atom. Uh, and then those are joined together in molecules, where um, the whole molecule has a form which binds together the parts, the atoms within it. So the, in a molecule, there are certain electrons whiz around the entire molecule, like a kind of envelope holding it together, and it's made up of atoms. So the molecule is a, a wholeness, has a wholeness that includes the atoms. And those can be included in crystals, like in snowflakes made up of water molecules. Um, and in living organisms, you have cells which have a wholeness more than the sum of their parts. They're in tissues, in organs, in organisms. And then organisms can form whole societies of organisms like schools of fish or flocks of birds or termite colonies uh, where the whole is more than the parts. And we see the same uh, general pattern of organization uh, in the solar system. The solar system is more than just the planet and the sun. The whole lot is a system, a, a wholeness with parts within it. And that in turn is within the galaxy, which is, has a great wholeness. So the stars are like cells within the body of the galaxy. And that too has a wholeness made up of parts. Now, our minds also work that way. They work in terms of parts and wholes, uh, nested in, in hierarchy of levels of organization. Um, that's how we see things in, in a kind of gestalt patterns. We see there's a wholeness and we see parts within them. And the structure of our language works that way too. If you think about it, the, the phonemes, the basic sounds, make up words. And the words uh, are put together in phrases and the phrases are put together in sentences. So a sentence consists of several phrases. Each phrase consists of words. Each word consists of phonemes. 
In each case, the, there's a patterning of the parts within a low, higher level hole, within a higher level hole, within a higher level hole. And this goes on right up to the entire universe. Galaxies come in clusters. Our galaxy is part of the Virgo supercluster, which has 50 galaxies in it. And um, there are, uh, then the, the universe is made up of whole strings of galaxies. Um, and so the entire universe is a whole made up of parts uh, that are themselves made up of parts that are made up of parts uh, in this nested hierarchy. So the, the organization of our own bodies is like that. The whole body, uh, is, is, uh, the whole of our organism is made up of parts like eyes and ears and noses and livers and spleens and limbs and so on, uh, which are brought together in a harmonious whole. Every self-organizing system by virtue of being self-organizing and by virtue of being an organism or a system, uh, has to coordinate the parts in an ordered way within the wholeness that constitutes that system. So I think that one of the things that we see when we see beauty is this relationship between parts and the whole. Uh, when we look at a flower, um, like a hollyhock, um, what we're seeing is a wholeness, the wholeness of the flower where the whole lot is coordinated together with parts, in this case five petals, and on the back five sepals, the green bits at the back, um, together with the uh, stamens, uh, the sexual organs in the center, the stamens and the, and the, um, uh, uh, the um, stigmas. Um, all these parts are coordinated together in a proportionate and balanced way. And I think that instinctive recognition of the balance, harmony, relationship of parts is uh, in a kind, a kind of resonance between the way our minds work, the way our nervous systems work, and it's the way our own, our own bodies work. It's the way our own societies work too. Um, so you have this, uh, uh, these general principles of order underlying all things. So in other words, I'm suggesting that there's so much beauty in the world because the world is made up of self-organizing systems which contain parts that are coordinated with each other, and that's in space. But the same goes for um, organization in time, which we experience through music and song. Um, there again, you have a, a wholeness of a whole piece of music, which is made up of parts like the bars and the basic rhythms and the harmonies and, and the notes. Uh, all of these are parts, but they're coordinated together in a kind of smooth flow, or even a jagged flow, um, but a flow that has a, a unity to it. So the note, the music begins in a particular key and it goes through different modulations, it ends in the same key it began in. There's a kind of wholeness, a kind of envelope around the whole piece of music. And, um, I think this again, is an expression of this principle of organization in time, which is common not just to the way our minds work and the way we appreciate music, but to the way the whole of nature works. I've been trying to think why it is that scenery is beautiful, because that doesn't follow quite the same principles. That It's not um, the fact that there are twin islands over there and we're here. It's not necessarily because there's some great self-organizing system that places islands in particular relationships to each other. There's a certain fortuitousness in geology uh, caused by continental collisions and mountain ranges being thrust up There's a, the, and earthquakes and volcanoes. There's a certain um, 
there are certain random processes at work. But I think one of the reasons the landscape here is uh, particularly beautiful is because it's been smoothed by glaciers. And flow uh, has a kind of unifying principle. And the fact that glaciers flowed this way over this landscape uh, means there's a kind of smoothing off. And our eyes sort of pick up the, re the, the residue of that flow pattern that's moved through this landscape. If it hadn't had uh, glaciers, the, the rocks might be much more jagged and much less attractive. One of the things about beauty is that because there is so much in the universe, because it suggests the fundamental principles of the universe include beauty, um, it's terrifying. It's something that overwhelms us. And therefore we often turn away from beauty because there's too much of it. Um, the poet who expressed this most clearly was Rainer Maria Rilke, the great German poet who was writing around the time of the First World War. And uh, in his first Duino elegy, um, he wrote about it as follows. Beauty's nothing but beginning of terror we're still just able to bear. And why we adore it so is because it serenely disdains to destroy us. He's talking there about the way that beauty can be utterly overwhelming. And... Uh, we turn away from it because it's so frightening. And you can all, you've all experienced this. Um, I've experienced it myself on Cortez Island. Once in an incredibly beautiful place, drinks are served, you're on the deck, there's an unbelievably beautiful view, and someone says, let's look at the beautiful view, and you look at the beautiful view, it's stunningly beautiful. But after a few seconds... Somebody says, oh, this reminds me of a scene I saw in Mexico last year. And somebody says, oh, yes, well, I saw something like that in Sumatra. You know, the sunset there was so red. And um, you immediately, the, a kind of conversation begins that takes you away from this terrifying beauty because it's so frightening to, it's so overwhelming, there's so much of it. People used to be terrified of uh, mountainous scenery. In Europe, until the 18th century, um, People talked about horrid crags, about mountains, and, and um, horrid meaning something that induces horror. Um, they found this scenery overwhelmingly, uh, frighteningly and overwhelming. In the Romantic movement at the end of the 18th century, a new fashion grew up for the sublime, which was uh, kinds of beauty like Alps, the Alps, uh, or huge waterfalls, or vast natural forces which people thought um, were, uh, they, previously people had shied away from them. Now the romantics like them precisely because they produce such strong emotions. Um, and a new fashion arose which never existed before for people going to wild places. And uh, this really began around the late 18th century. The fashion, the change in fashion was expressed in England through gardening. Until the 17th century in England, the gardens were like the gardens in France and the rest of Europe. Uh, extremely formal, geometrical patterns, box hedges, um, you know, squares, oblongs, triangles, completely formal, uh, representing the imposition of order upon nature by humans. And most humans were afraid that you know, nature was disorderly and could easily destroy them. And this gave this sort of safe area of order. But by the end of the 18th century, the fashion had completely shifted. And uh, people liked wild nature. And the, the job of landscape gardeners in England was to create gardens that looked 
as if they were wild, untamed nature, even though they were actually artificially created to improve on nature. To, uh, the idea was to make the garden look natural as opposed to artificial. So it was a kind of imitation of nature. You get something of the same aesthetic in China and Japan in those Zen gardens with bonsai trees, which are uh, not about formal geometric uh, arrangements, but rather ones that show a kind of wildness of nature. And uh, Dr. Johnson, the 18th century English literary figure, uh, when he went to Scotland, uh, wrote, he said, my eyes are repelled by these acres of hopeless sterility. And he was longing to see cultivated fields and hedges and domesticated landscape, which is what he thought beautiful. He was part of the pre-romantic taste for ordered landscapes. Um, but the romantic taste was for wild nature. And it reached its apogee in the 19th century in uh, people like Emerson and Thoreau, and especially John Muir, and the foundation of the National Parks Movement, with Yellowstone being the first. Um, and uh, the idea of this enormous, grand-scale, sublime beauty that previously uh, people had been rather repelled by, frightened by, overwhelmed by. If we look at uh, traditional thought about beauty, then the most obvious philosopher who to discuss this, the one who really set the tone for subsequent discussions, was Plato. And Plato, in his philosophy, um, thought that the, uh, this world is a kind of reflection of a world outside space and time, which exists in some supreme mind or consciousness, and which contains all the ideas or forms of everything that can occur in nature. So every lily is a reflection of the ideal lily archetype that exists eternally in this transcendent mind. Um, and that's the realm of platonic forms or ideas. He thought that this world was an imperfect reflection of this eternal world of perfect forms. Um, and Plato thought that the ultimate characteristic of the ultimate mind of the universe, uh, its ultimate three characteristics, the three features that overrode all the others or was, was overarched all the others, were truth, beauty, and goodness. That this ultimate source of all nature was true because it was the ultimate reality, beautiful because it was in the nature of the ultimate goodness to be beautiful and good because uh, it was the ultimate good. It was the source of all things. Um, in Christian theology, the, this idea of the Platonic mind was included as in the Holy Trinity as the Logos, the um, second person of the Holy Trinity, the Word. Um, and that's the sort of mind of God. Uh, which takes on these characteristics of truth, beauty, and goodness. In the Catholic Catechism, um, uh, the supreme definition of God is the true, the good, and the beautiful. So um, both traditional philosophies and uh, religions have seen the ultimate source of beauty as God, the source of uh, all reality, and that all the beauty in nature and all the organization of nature reflects this ultimate um, consciousness um, in which beauty is embedded as part of its very nature. Of course, the, this view is not accepted by everyone. For atheists and materialists, um, beauty is just something that's experienced by animal nervous systems. Um, 
that uh, have evolved uh, so that it has some use, like sexual selection. Um, and it's not, it doesn't make sense to say it's part of nature uh, because uh, there's no, they, they think that the uh, whole universe is basically unconscious and you can't be conscious of beauty if you're unconscious. Um, um, so this is one of the big dividing lines between uh, the materialist or atheist worldview, which says that nature is entirely unconscious, the universe is a purposeless machine, matter is unconscious, uh, the only conscious things in the universe are brains, and the most conscious thing in the entire universe, as far as we know, is our own brains. Um, that means that the um, it really does come back to what I started with, the idea it's all in the eye of the beholder, it's something to do with nervous systems, and beauty is something to do with release of serotonin or dopamine in particular regions of the nervous system, creating a sensation of beauty. Whereas this view, the, all, all religions, all spiritual uh, traditions, um, take the view that human consciousness is not the ultimate consciousness in the universe. There are forms of consciousness vastly greater than our own, and the role of spiritual practices is to connect us with those greater forms of consciousness. And in most traditional cultures, beauty has always been one of the ways that we do that. So this is a worldview difference, and um, there are some people, probably some people in this room, who just see the, the world as a, a, a mechanistic system, um, which means all consciousness is confined to nervous systems, and especially the nervous systems of large brains like ours. Um, that view then does have a bit of a problem with bees and beauty because they've got so many fewer nerves than us and yet they clearly have some kind of sense of beauty. Um, but the other worldview which all religions share is that there's a, this greater form of consciousness than ours and that this greater consciousness than ours has given rise to the whole universe including the beauty that's reflected in the whole universe and reflected in our minds. The reason we can appreciate beauty is because our minds come from the same source as the whole of nature, and that source itself has beauty as one of its component elements. It's one of its characteristic parts or aspects. Well, that's more or less what I wanted to say. Um, uh, uh, um, I don't know if it makes sense to you whether it's too closely argued, loosely argued, too serious, um, but um, those are my reflections on it, and I'd be very interested to hear um, any other people, any, anyone else's reflections, because I'm sure some, some people here are artists, spend their whole life producing works of beauty. Um, so um, do please um, make comments or ask questions.